Welcome to the first in our series of Wealth Creation Podcasts. In this series, we aim to provide you with the tools you will need as you build up your wealth and leave a legacy for generations to come. Our aim is to deliver more than just vanilla investment advice that you can access online. And you'll be hearing over the next few weeks or so from investment professionals who have a passion for markets, as well as expertise in guiding many of South Africa's leading families in their investment journeys. We'll also have access to leading experts in different areas of investment specialization. In our first episode, we speak to Stephen Silcock and Debello Rabele about why we invest and the power of compounding. Now, they're a perfect pair for this topic, as Stephen has a wealth of experience in the markets, while Debello is a young investment manager whose insights are sure to resonate with most of us. Debelo Rabele is a wealth manager at Investec Wealth and Investment, and his other titles include being the IT guy at home, a son to many, and a husband and a father to one at the moment. Uh, whereas Stephen is a portfolio manager with Investec Wealth and Investment, and he joined the group at the turn of the century in the year 2000. He loves reading, fishing, and playing sport, but loves nothing more than a bush holiday with his wife and three girls. Now, gentlemen, top of the morning to the pair of you. And thank you, of course, for joining us for this discussion. I want us maybe to start, Stephen and Debello, with, I guess, you know, what drives all of us to invest. Uh, not necessarily the technicalities or the asset classes. We'll certainly get to all of that. But Stephen, I mean, you have an interesting sort of genesis of your own interest uh, in the markets, uh, having, I guess, been somebody who used to shadow uh, your grandfather, who was uh, also a seasoned veteran in the markets as well. What resonated with you about the marketplace, about the preservation of wealth that has certainly you know, kept you in this industry for as long as it has? Yeah, thank you very much, Ayabanga. Uh, morning, all. You make me feel very old when you say that I started at the turn of the century. But um, I've been very fortunate to uh, have worked at Investec Wealth and Investment in a number of capacities for, for 20 years now in, in several roles, as I mentioned. Uh, I've been in stockbroking, portfolio management and investment management. And I've seen a number of bear markets also. As you touched on, I've, I started in the dot-com crash in the early 2000s at Investec. And then we had the global financial crisis obviously in 2008, and, and now in this COVID pandemic, which is affecting so many people. But I was incredibly fortunate, as you mentioned, to have started in the industry and even before that, with a grandfather who was very well known in stockbroking circles around South Africa. And I think, uh, Ayabonga, I, I inherited some of my passion for investing from him. Some of my fondest memories are of sitting with him in typical grandfather style in a mahogany lined uh, office listening as he spoke about shares and why you must start investing early. Uh, wonderful tales of the floor of the JSC as well as the insights that he's learned over 40 years uh, in the markets. I think one of the things that, that comes across so strongly for me and he, he was from Scotland. He had a wonderful broad Scottish brogue and he used to talk about Leo Tolstoy's quote about the, the two most powerful warriors being patience and time. He had a very long-term view on investing. And I guess that similar experience, I mean, on your end, at Debello, having been, you know, a red in a family of entrepreneurs and business people and really being introduced, you know, in your teens uh, to the stock markets, um, you know, analyzing PE ratios in high school. I don't know who was doing that, but uh, clearly Debello, you were doing that. And uh, yeah, I mean, also joining the stock market academy in school and um, really going in at university and studying investment management. It's quite interesting, Debello, that you, you, you would have sort of had this interest in 
the stock market and, uh, you know, in different asset classes. And for you, from your perspective, I mean, how did that, I guess, you know, complement your interest in business and the genesis of that? Sure. Yeah, I think when you when you sort of re- revised it that way, I mean, it's keen recollections or fond recollections, I would say. You're making me sound as old as Stephen. <laughs> but I would say, you know, one very key thing I would say, coming from an, a family of entrepreneurs, I think we can see it in the, in the environment that we are now. We're in mid-July in the year 2021. And my family came from a business or an environmental background of entrepreneurs. And you can imagine trying to run at that time back then in a similar environment to what we see now with Riot. But it just sort of fostered the interest in value creation around wealth. And I think that's where I sort of developed the passion for it. And I guess, you know, my father obviously then put the newspaper in front of me at the time because we didn't have Bloomberg. And he used to make me read through that huge page of numbers. And that that gave me a passion for pricing of businesses. So a combined business or passion for entrepreneurship and a combined then, you know, formal market that gives you pricing for for these businesses which create value. And, you know, essentially the art around investment management sort of sparked the passion and the interest. You know, Devil, it's quite fascinating that you draw the links between, you know, the moments your own family was in business across a wide range of sectors and, you know, the riotous mood in the 80s and where we are, I guess, you know, now, because it speaks volumes about why people invest. I I don't think people need a lot of convincing at this point in time. Uh, What with COVID-19, with all of the risk events that we've seen materialize, uh, there's the sense that you probably want to make sure you're not just investing just for a rainy day, but there's also this question of the intergenerational transfer of wealth. Yeah, I think just as you speak about generations, I mean, very privileged, obviously, to share a floor with a seasoned investor like Stephen, also a very great human being who has a very big passion for, for our country. In our space or in our office, I don't know if he minds me sharing, but we call him um, Stivovo. You know, such a, such, you know, such, such a refreshing view. And, and it's, it's honestly, you know, one of those things, the same way you learn from your grandparents, or the same way you learn from uncles and mentors, we rely on the experiences of, of professionals like Steve, as well as, you know, shaping our own view in the future. I think the markets are obviously going to be different for our generation going forward. And But it seems like Steve will probably share, you know, the more things change, the more they, they sort of, you know, kind of stay the same, which is why I guess Steve would say, you know, having time in the market versus timing the market is, is a very crucial, crucial aspect of it. And I guess, Stephen, you know, a big part of that is about weathering the storms. You know, these might be sort of short-term uh, developments that have massive implications on asset prices. But as you said earlier, you know, the, this balance between, you know, time and patience and embedding value over a long period of time. How important is that? I mean, you, as you said, you've seen a lot of, you know, bear markets. What can we learn from past experiences about how we uh, weather the storms and take a long-term view on where we are? Yeah, thanks. You know, sometimes it's the best thing to do. And I know it's going to sound very boring, particularly to the Reddit crew who have made a a lot of money with some very short term trades. But sometimes in these stomach churning events, the best thing to do is actually nothing. Ayabonga. And it sounds quite contrary to what you should be doing. You should be reacting, you think. But the best thing to do is allow compounding and time to do their work. You know, compound interest favors those who start early in life and it's never too late to start or too early. And time is compounding's magic whose importance cannot be minimized. We can try time the market. We often get it very wrong. 
and we just sometimes have to leave investments untouched. The best return is usually slow and steady. The problem is, Ayabonga, in, in these sort of environments, it's very emotive. And I think coming back to my grandfather, one of his most successful attributes is that he remained very dispassionate about all the emotionally charged things that were happening day to day. And this ultimately led him to coming out ahead of almost everyone else in the long term. But I think the two key points that I want to emphasize here are the long term side of things and then obviously the compounding. And I guess a, a very good example of that would be a stock that many of us are quite familiar with. I mean, Apple. And then, you know, you make this example of if you had invested in the IPO of Apple in December 1980, where would people be? You know, where would one's portfolio be, I guess, in relation to its weighting of, on Apple if one had invested out in December 1980? Um, I, I get a sense that you probably would have had to stomach a lot of uh, share price falls as well. Yeah, that's it's an incredible point. So Apple, obviously, everyone knows, and most most households have some sort of Apple device in them at the moment. IPO'd in 1980, and if you had just stayed invested in Apple, you would have had a, a cumulative uh, return of over 56,000%, which just sounds mind-blowing. But during the course of that journey to 56,000%, you would also have to stomach share price falls of over 80%. On two occasions, over 60% on two occasions, and many more occasions where the share price fell over 50%. Panicking in these pullbacks would have been exactly the wrong thing to do. What you need to be doing, in my opinion, and it is, as I say, sometimes very hard, is you need to be buying into great and growing companies at good prices. Don't become impatient. Don't expect it to perform quickly. What you, what you do need to do is understand that great companies can go through occasional periods of downturns, of stagnation, but that the best thing to do is to stay invested in these companies with good management, with moat-like defenses that, that have pricing power and that are going to provide you with exceptional long-term returns. And I guess, Debra, let me bring you in here because I think Stephen's making a very, very important point of the time horizon and the importance uh, when we analyze that over a few decades of, you know, how certain asset allocation can give you the type of returns. I mean, if you think about 30-year return on the S&P, I think I saw in something that you wrote 850%, which uh, if you factor in inflation, is probably, you know, just shy of around 250% or so. So in a sense, there's this, you know, notwithstanding all of the perceptions that, you know, equities in the last while haven't performed as well. But if you take a longer term view, Debelo, it does seem that uh, they certainly, I guess, do give some bang for buck. Yeah, Ivan, I think you, you've got it um, spot on, you know. And I think what, what Steve mentioned there, which is very crucial, is the notion of instant gratification, which is something that especially our generation isn't immune to, you know. How do you compromise your, your potential spending today and, you know, leave it for potential earnings and growth for tomorrow? And, you know, if you have a look at the, the impacts, I mean, Steve mentioned something very crucial, the power of compounding, both negatively and positively, you know, can impact you. So if you are sort of taking on, let's say, debt, maybe that's negative compounding. It's compounding that's working against you. If you sort of then investing your funds, so sacrificing your, your spend of today to sort of, you know, invest in your potential spending for tomorrow, you then investing in the positive effects of compounding, which is something that a lot of times, you know, we overlook until it's too late. So 
you know, we, we investment professionals deal a lot with people who are retiring and it, it becomes such a very sensitive thing. And if you get to a point where you need to retire and you haven't made sufficient provisions and we all know the stats about, you know, retirement stats in this country, probably, you know, less than 5% of our population actually retires in a position where, you know, they can sustain their, their lives. Tabel, it's so interesting that you mention, you know, time and patience, as Stephen did earlier on, also in relation to one's work life cycle, because I do think that that introduces alongside the uh, benefits of compounding uh, over a long time horizon, this notion of risk, uh, because the risk of somebody at the start of their career, 24 year old, and we can build out an archetype of what that looks like versus somebody who's much closer to, you know, retirement time T. Uh, who's potentially looking from their investment for periodic flows and streams of income rather than appreciative value over a long period of time. How does that influence where, you know, the allocative decisions go and by implication, I guess one's investment philosophy, uh, if we can think about it in that sense. Yeah, I would say, look, I don't think any of us are immune to that. I mean, there's a lot of competing interests for, for not just your, your, your money, but for your attention, your time. As a young person, I myself, you know, you, you're gathering assets on one end. You also need to be very careful what you consider assets and, and personal use assets because there's a big difference, you know. So you're obviously trying to set up your life. You're trying to purchase property. You're trying to do all of these things. And that at the same time, with all these things competing for your financial interests or your financial attention, if you can call it that, you still have to think, shucks, I need to save. But, you know, when you, when you look at the impacts of compounding, you know, there's various case studies where, you know, they will show you that someone started investing at the age of 18 and stopped at maybe like 28 and, you know, didn't invest for a long time and versus someone who starts at 28 and invests double that amount. And often you find that with the impacts of compounding, um, the person who started at 18, as little as it may have been, or three times less is the, the equivalent, would probably have, you know, much more in, in a 40-year term, you know, than the person who started 10 years later. That's how powerful compounding is. Yeah, so just to add to what Tebs is saying there. So the risk, we, we tend to think of risk as a little bit of a fixed concept. In other words, that equities and stocks are riskier than than cash and bonds. But I think we need to also assess risk in combination with a time horizon. So what I mean by that, and Tebs was alluding to it with regards to starting early, the earlier you start investing, obviously, obviously the better and uh, diversification is key. But I think one of the most important decisions you make as an investor is the allocation between um, asset classes, which are primarily uh, stocks, bonds, property and, and cash. And uh, some of the recent reports that I've been reading have, have intimated that the younger generation has a disdain or a dislike for equities, particularly over cash. And I can understand that in that people who've started investing 20 years ago had that, that dot-com bubble uh, impact. They had the GFC and then obviously had the pandemic, which has impacted. And, and you've had big drawdowns in the market. But I think... What has happened, and, and you've seen that is, is that, is that people then have become fearful of markets and, and have stayed in, stayed in cash. And I think there's, that's very, very, very risky. Actually, being in cash is dangerous. Uh, every single long-term uh, research report that, that you would read intimates that cash is the worst performing asset over almost all periods and that equities are certainly the best uh, over longer periods. 
But that doesn't mean to say that uh, diversification isn't key. But the point that I'm trying to get across is that if you if you used to say that you're 25 and saving for, for retirement, that you had a 40-year time horizon, that drastically changes what is risky and what is safe, in, in my opinion. And, uh, and that would mean that you can have quite a lot of equity exposure and ride through the cycle. And, and, and added to that, Ayabonga, is that I think that changes in, in lifestyle and medicine um, has meant that we're living longer and retiring later. So that even a 40-year view looks quite conservative to me at these, at these stages. So, so avoid making decisions now, I think, uh, or making decisions that feel as if you're on the verge of retirement when you're young, um, as it could cost you huge amounts of wealth. Steve, you, you make a very interesting comparison and point about in the last, I would say, two decades, critical moments of crisis that we have had, you know, dot-com crash, early 2000s, the global financial crisis around 2007, eight, and now the onset of COVID-19. And it does seem uh, certainly that the frequency of many of these financial and capital market crises is becoming, I guess, a lot shorter if you take just those last two decades or so. What are some of the things that you've picked up, I mean, as, as recurring themes? One I would think is you know, massive liquidity in response to this crisis, if you think about the global financial crisis and the current one in global markets. Um, and that, of course, has an implication for us here at home. What are some of the other things that you've seen? Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's the, uh, the financial stability um, has, has largely been kept up by central banks and governments with, as you mentioned, this huge amount of stimulus. And I think that we were on the precipice in 2008. So that was, that was very, very interesting to see how governments and central banks worked together to bail out banks and institutions and the individual investor. What we are seeing is that information has become a lot more available to people. I think that the, the pullbacks in markets are going to be shorter than, than what we've been seeing uh, in the past um, as the stimulus has, uh, has come into effect. And as I mentioned, Ibonga, there's a lot of cash still on the sidelines. So people will use any pullbacks in the market, I think, to, uh, I think to prop up uh, their exposure to, to equities uh, uh, and bonds and, and, and property. You know, Kabel, Stephen makes a very important and interesting comment around the accessibility of information. And often in the markets, people say information is reflected in prices. And it does seem all of us in our smartphones have some semblance of the market information you used to read in, in the newspapers or the price information you used to read. In the and it also, we've seen this proliferation of platforms that allow people entry into the capital market. What suggestions would you have for me as a layperson who is being bombarded with all manner of platforms that are saying, hey, here's an avenue or a conduit to equity markets and other asset classes. You know, how, how do I separate, I guess, the wheat from the chaff? Yeah, so I think in the investment community, there's, there's a term of what they would call armchair investors. So what often happens is that there's a silo that people normally form views in. So you probably find that you, there's a specific channel that you watch or there's a guy that you rate highly that sort of confirms your biases, you know, whether it's on radio, whether it's on television or a newspaper writer. And I would say what you need to, first of all, in terms of a living body, you must understand that financial markets are probably the most sophisticated, impressive things that, you know, have ever come to invention. You know, you'll understand it if you ever try price companies in private equity markets. So that voting proxy is a view and a, it's very crucial in terms of the sentiment, but that sentiment can also throw you astray. You basically trying to, you know, sort of 
um, channel or sort of ride the sentiment of, you know, a population of maybe close to 3 billion people that are voting daily on price. Um, so what I would actually advise is say, inform your, inform your process or your, your decisions more around processes than you do around prices. So if you're saying you're taking on a value approach or if, you, you, if you're employing a manager and you're employing them for, for value or you're employing them for growth style investing, assess them accordingly. So you might judge a, a value manager and say, shucks, they sold this company um, you know, early, you know, whereas as part of the metrics of what they're meant to do, um, it probably was the right call. So I would say, you know, similar to what Steve alluded to as well, view your risk according to your time horizon. That is very important as a young person. I mean, if you know that in 45 years, equities, and this is just in South Africa, SA equities gave you an annual return of about 19.6% versus inflation, you know, that gave you 8.5. So at least you, you've gotten a real return, you know, of close to call it, you know, 10.5%. Whereas bonds or cash, cash gave you 10%. So you've only really gotten a, a, a 2% real return. And that's, that's for me, in my view, is, is, is an aspect of, of erosion. One thing that we need to also understand from equities is that, you know, the base of it is a risk-free return. So ultimately, managers are always trying to outperform risk-free return, which essentially does sort of factor in inflation. So if you base your, your faith or your your vote on the capacity of people to always wanting to achieve better. You know, um, entrepreneurs are artists, so investment managers. We always want to achieve better. We always want to create value and people are always aspiring to outperform their current situations. Then you're putting your bet on the markets. And, and I think that's my view. And I, I think in that respect, I really do agree with Steve. Tabela, we've spoken, I guess, about diversification from an asset class perspective. But uh, there's also the other element, if we are to think about it in a broader sense and try and you know, get these risk-adjusted returns that you're referring to, which is diversification across different sectors in the economy, but also geographic diversification uh, in a context where the markets also allow us uh, opportunities to invest you know, in other assets outside of South Africa. Yes, I, I, I completely agree. So one thing that's crucial to understand um, South Africa is, is privileged to, to have a very strong financial system. In fact, some of our banks are the best rated banks globally and similar with our, you know, our leaders. So in terms of executives and companies and what that has sort of created is, I don't want to call it myopic, but, you know, we, we sort of self, we view ourselves as self-sufficient and, and not too many times of people have to, I mean, Steve will touch on the performance of local markets, you know, in the early, late nineties headed towards the early 2000s, which you know, the JSC was the second, at some point, the second best performing market globally. However, what we need to remember is that South Africa as a market or, you know, our, our, our listed markets constitute less than, you know, 0.5% of the global economy. So if you're investing 100% of your, of your investable assets, you know, in South Africa, you're basically placing 100% of your view on, on local markets, which constitute less than 0.5%. So I would definitely prioritize um, asset class diverse diversification, as well as geographic diversification, very crucial. Stephen, let me bring you back in here. I mean, you, you were speaking about the Reddit crew 
earlier on. And I think one of the things that has come with this sort of diffusion of technologies in the space is also sort of massive rises in volumes and uh, the liquidity of particular types of, you know, investments that, um, you know, certain groups that ordinarily wouldn't, you know, have invested in it, uh, wait, not for these digital advances. I'm quite interested, I guess, in hearing from you whether or not that's introduced a certain type of short-termism in the marketplace and what are the implications of that in a context in South Africa, for instance, where you have a declining base of listings, also in a context where many people are still looking to take their businesses to the to the capital markets as well. I actually, strangely enough, have some sympathy with the crew that have made a large amount of money through the short-term trading and all credit to them. I just, I just, my feeling is that uh, you have to get in right at the bottom to be a, a big beneficiary of that. Not everyone can do that. And, and some people have obviously lost a lot of money during the course of it. My I, I might be boring and old-fashioned, but as I touched on right at the beginning, Ayabonga, I just, I just feel that you just need to be. I'm, more, I'm much more of a fundamentally driven investor. I'm not saying that it's, it's right or wrong, but that certainly, that during the course of history, that's, that's what has proven to be the best course of action, particularly. Uh, in investing and and equities. Coming back to to South Africa, it is a concern to me that there are a number of companies delisting. And as Tabella touched on, we are 0.4% of the globe now. I think we can make a lot of money in South Africa. And I think that there's, uh, particularly from a valuation perspective, South Africa is looking extremely cheap as are emerging markets, particularly relative to the States. But it does concern me that uh, we're becoming smaller and smaller from a globe perspective. Be very well positioned to help should uh, our clients need offshore exposure. And large portions of the portfolios do have exposure to the best companies and funds in the world. Mm. And I guess a question for, for the both of you. I mean, are, are you seeing any preference shifts in the, not only just, I guess, the risk appetite, but even the allocative, you know, desires of some of those clients, uh, be it, you know, family or large individual clients as well? Just across the board. Yeah, I'll start tips and then and then jump in. We're certainly seeing a lot of high net worth private clients financially emigrate. In other words, taking a large portion of their funds offshore uh, in order to in, in order to gain exposure to to the best companies in the world. But that doesn't mean that you that you can't make money in South Africa. Funny enough, from a from a risk perspective, we think that South Africa and emerging markets right now, Ayabonga are looking very attractive. You know, at Investech, we, we, the difference is, you know, we're not necessarily an entity that is, you know, has global reach. We actually have global presence. So, you know, we, we have specialists across the world which would be giving us insights into, you know, the, the different factors which are impacting markets in their respective jurisdictions, you know, whether it's in emerging markets or Switzerland, the UK, etc. You know, something that people often neglect is, when you're investing offshore and you're investing in segregated items, um, you, you face this risk where, you know, the tax implications upon death might be mm. quite detrimental for intergenerational transfer. Mm. Um, we're also able to give you access to fund managers, um, you know, which normally have a high barrier of entry, by the way, um, who are the best fund managers in the world. You know, some of our funds are top quartile percentage um, or top quartile performers since inception. And, you know, they would give you, you know, access to the likes of your, your, maybe your Apples, your Amazons, your, your different mm. fang stocks, you know, um, with a theme, which they sort of evaluate or the metrics that they position their fund managers to perform accordingly to fund managers who are in their respective jurisdictions, 
um, with CITES efficiency, tax efficiency, cost efficiency, um, you understand? It, so it's not that much of a daunting task as well to invest in offshore sure, markets. Sure. You invest in the right, um, in the right, correct avenues. Mm. And I guess, Stephen, I mean, Debella makes a very, very crucial point. There is this perception out there that there are massive barriers to entry into this globally diversified pool of capital and where potentially people could invest in line with their risk profile and pursue the intergenerational transfer of wealth. Now, the point on taxes, the point on, you know, the transfer from one generation to the next of those asset holdings, I think is so important at the current moment where we find ourselves. I don't think it's a tough sell for people to think about these things when COVID-19 is spilling over into successive risk events for families, death, retrenchment, short time, household distress. What message would you have for, for many of our listeners who, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, are finding themselves in a context where many are very anxious about these risk events and the implications that these are going to have on the ability to pass on wealth from one generation to the next? Yeah, um, yeah it's, a, it's a great question, Abonga. I think that you have, to, you have to choose people that you trust to look after your wealth with experience. I think that you have to be in it for the long term. I think that you have to have a portfolio, and I always use the term uh, a sleep easy portfolio. I wouldn't be taking any additional risk that causes you not to sleep well at night, whether it's in an individual stock sector geography. I think you have to have diversification. And and ultimately, I think, Ayabonga, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we, we have to make sure that the decisions that we make rest very easy on both your investment advisor's shoulders and on your shoulders. And it's vitally important that you get the risk profile right at the beginning, correct. From there, we'll be able to go on a journey with you, which we hope will provide you not only with um, enough for retirement, but to hand over significant wealth to your children. So I would really say that, you know, taking the advice of professionals, making sure that you you plan in terms of, you know, prioritizing for your future is highly crucial. Me and my wife just, just recently um, got our firstborn son. And my priority now is to make sure that I, you know, I've, I've set up his tax-free savings and I'm ensuring that, you know, from day one, he's already able to take advantage of, of compounding. And even myself, I'm not, as an investment professional, I'm, I'm not a, really a keen fan of single stock exposure. So even for my, my son personally, I'm investing through fund managers myself. So I'm asset allocating for my son in co- according to different diverse themes, which I find prudent. And hopefully by the time, you know, he's nine, 10 years old, you know, and he's exhausted that tax-free savings amount or, you know, allocation or allowance that you get, you know, he would already have a base which already starts compounding by the time he's 10 years old. And, and hopefully then I've, 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 sort, of, I've sort of done, um, you know, what's necessary as a parent to prepare my, my son for and his siblings with future to come for the financial future that they need to be prepared for. You know, when we deal with retirement clients, you, you really then get to understand the sensitivity around preparing for your future. Nothing can ever prepare you for a conversation where you sit with a person who's worked incredibly hard, you know, their whole lives. And, you know, at the point where they think they can retire, you then have to sort of break down the fact that 
you know, they're not necessarily in a position to do so. It's a soul-crushing experience, in fact, especially if someone has been, you know, doing the most for trying to provide for their families and all these competing interests that we spoke about earlier eventually come to, you know, you know, a crescendo at that time. So yeah, there's nothing more important than that, making the initial step. Try your best to squash your negative compounding contributors. So what does that mean is if you've got debt, try your best to, you know, clear that as soon as possible. Because remember in the negative compounding, if you're getting charged prime, let's say for instance, that means you are going back that same snowball effect that we were talking about where you could easily retire if you're disciplined is taking you away from that at an equal, if not faster pace. So I would definitely say prioritize keeping your expenses at bay as much as you can and focus more on squashing the, the negative compounding contributors. What you would should rather try and do in terms of setting goals for yourself, if you have a certain taste for things, try and increase your capacity to earn. So invest in your invest in your specialties or you know get a mentor, set goals. Um, personally, my, my I've I've got various mentors, but my father is my is my life coach, and every once in a while, whether it's a year or two years, we sit and then we assess the goals, and then I tell him, you know, what I've done, what I haven't done, and you know, if you discipline in that way, you might find yourself in a position where you've invested the time to grow your income capacity in in whatever fronts. But don't you'll never cheat. There's a phrase, you'll never cheat the game. You'll never cheat the game. So don't think that you're just going to... Yes, sure, you might make quick wins. That's very great if you do. But rather try invest in a skill or if, you know, if you're investing in a business um, that you will create your capacity to increase your earnings at, you know, versus you know, what you're earning in your job or your skill set, whatever the case may be, rather let that be the guide of your increase in lifestyle versus necessities. Sure, sure, sure. Don't try and game the game, but also make sure that you expand uh, what I would call the income side of uh, that income statement. And certainly hope that um, many of our listeners will continue to uh, check in and benefit from the measurable wealth of experience that the pair of you have. Stephen Silcock and Debila Rabele, thank you very much. Just a reminder, this is the first episode of the Wealth Creation Podcast series. So do stay tuned for more engaging conversations on wealth creation. And our upcoming episodes will touch on the basics of investing and discuss different asset classes. If you would like more information on some of the topics we've covered today, or if you'd like to start your wealth creation journey, please reach out to a wealth manager or a private banker. If you're an existing private bank client, you can also access the Investec My Investments platform to start investing in local unit trusts with a reduced minimum of 1,000 Rand per month. The views expressed in this episode are those of the contributors at the time of its publication and do not necessarily represent the views of Investec Wealth and Investment and should not be taken as financial or any other advice. Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, a member of the JSC Equity, Equity Derivatives, Currency Derivatives, Bond Derivatives and Interest Rate Derivatives Markets, an authorized financial services provider and a registered credit provider.